Uh, also, just want to let you know, I just got back from, from getting to go on the Mexico trip. I'm very gl- grateful that I got to go with the teens down to the City of Angels Orphanage. It was, it was a blessing to be a part of that trip. Um, I believe that we were able to, to bless the orphanage that's there. And, and additionally, something new that was added to our trip, we were able to tackle a, a project to take on with the local church that's there um, near the City of Angels Orphanage. As far as anybody at the church remembers or anybody on staff at the City of Angels remembers, it's the first time that any group has come specifically to work with the local church. And so we felt like this was a great addition to our trip this time. We really felt that God was doing some things. And I just want to thank you as a body. Once again, I got to go someplace and, and enjoy the fruit, the, the blessing of being a part of you. Um, every single leader on, on City of Angels staff pulled me aside at different times and told me, that they really use Landmark's trip as the example that they hold up for other trips of what a good trip ought to look like, of what a hard-working trip ought to look like. Uh, and so I just want to say thank you. You're, you're raising your sons and your daughters and your granddaughters and your grandsons to serve in the kingdom, and, um, and we're grateful for that. And so I just want to encourage you, tell you to keep it up. My kids are coming down the pipeline, so I want you to raise them the same way you've raised these. And so it's a good to be a part of you. Uh, there's a twofold reason why I'm preaching what I am today. One of these comes from some conversations that I had with some of the young men on this trip. The sorts of conversations, the, the holy moments that you have when, when you've worked hard together and you're decompressing, everyone's guard is down. I got to have some good conversations with some guys who were asking some real questions about spiritual warfare and about how I've seen both Satan and God work in my life and in the lives of those whom I served in, in West Africa. And they were asking some questions about why we don't see Satan doing the same things here in America that he does in other parts of the world, and, and why we don't even necessarily see God doing the same things here that he does in other parts of the world. And they seem to be asking these questions in, in such a way that they wanted more than my usual offhanded answer of the fact that we don't have eyes to see it. Um, a second reason has to do with my continued personal reflection on the gospel. Um, the last time that I preached, if any of you had ears to hear past my story about my neighbor's dog, Buddy Bell, uh, which, by the way, that was a real story. That was not a preacher story. It's, you can come meet Buddy Bell someday if you want to. It was about the fact that we were, I was asking the question, what is the good news in the gospel for the have-nots for the haves? So today I want, to consider, I want to continue as we reflect on the nature of the gospel by asking the question, how is it possible that one gospel message is supposed to reach every culture on earth? How is that possible that one story can apply to all the different cultures that are in Montgomery alone, much less China, Turkey, Tanzania, Mexico. How how is that one story possible to touch every culture? Before we do that, we need to uh, define a couple of terms. First of all, when I say gospel, what am I talking about? Uh, What I'm referring to is the good news about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the gospel story. Paul defined it perfectly for us over in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. There are some things that are secondary importance. This is first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then he goes on and he lists the other witnesses to the resurrection. This is the gospel message. And so when I talk about this story, this is the one I'm talking about. It's a true story. It actually happened. And it's supposed to touch every person in every culture. So my question is, how is that possible? Continuing with some broad generalizations, those of you who know me know that I'm a culture guy. You'll notice I did not say cultured. I said culture guy. 
I believe that the best conversations, that the best ministries, the best meals happen when you take the time to learn about another culture. But yet, despite all of that, right now, I'm going to lump every human being alive on earth into one of three categories. So I ask you to forgive me for that. First of all, I want to talk about us here in the West. When I say the West, I mean Europe and most of North America. When we talk about the gospel, we're concerned about guilt and innocence. We're concerned about right and wrong. We're concerned about in debt and out of debt. Um, Our sin has made us guilty. Our sin has made us wrong. And and Jesus fixes that. And we hear it echoed in our songs. Um, We hear it on our hymnody. Anybody who grew up in youth group the same time I did is familiar with the song. Um, He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. Started to sing it, but Jeremy's not here for me to audition for the new praise team, so I decided not to. Uh, But that song ends with, Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. And that really sums up our understanding of the gospel for us here in the West. That's what the gospel message is. So our question is, can Jesus restore my innocence? Can he cancel my debt and make me right with God? On the other hand, in much of the developing world, by this we mean rural Africa, rural Latin and South America, the question isn't really about guilt. Their question is more concerned with which of the gods is the strongest. Out of all the gods out there, which one's the strongest? They're less concerned with right and wrong than they are with the fact that might makes right. And for them, it matters that God and Jesus are stronger than Satan. So their big question is, is Jesus stronger than the gods? And then finally, out in the east, both the near and the far, societies are built around this dichotomy of honor and shame. Shame has been brought upon them by their sin. They've shamed their families. They've shamed their cultures. They've shamed their countries. Their question is, can God restore my honor? That's their burning question. And incidentally, although this is often the one that's hardest for us to understand, it's actually the culture in which the Bible was written. The Bible was written in an honor and a shame-based society. And so our understanding of Scripture is really limited. If we don't begin to, put, to begin to understand what we're talking about, a gospel that addresses this message of honor and shame. And so what we have are three ways that Satan attacks people today. Guilt, fear, and shame. These are the three ways that he seems to attack cultures. And I, wanna, I want us to look at how this got started. But to do that, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. All the way back to the beginning of time. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read of a perfect, newly created world, empty of sin. It's all summed up in Genesis 2.25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Which was a great way to be. But then in Genesis 3, we read of how Satan tempted Adam and Eve to eat that fruit. And that's where I want us to read just a bit to see the origin of these temptations from Satan. 6 and 7, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. What do you hear there? What are they feeling for the first time? Shame. It's the death of a shame-free world. Continuing on in verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day which used to fill them with joy. But they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. So what do you hear here? Fear. This is the death of the fear-free world. And then finally, God speaks up and he says, 
Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man, ever courageous, said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me fruit and I ate it. So then the Lord God says to the woman, What is this you've done? And she said, The serpent did this to me. What do you see here in all this finger pointing? You see guilt. It's the end of a guilt-free world. So from the very beginning of sin, Satan has been tempting us with these three things, with shame and with fear and with guilt, and he's still doing it today. But the message that I want to share with you today is that the gospel speaks to each of these. The gospel speaks to all three of these, and we're going to take a look at that now. First off, we're going to start close to home here in our own culture where we're so concerned with right and wrong, with justice and injustice, with being in debt and being out of debt. The question for us, can Jesus make me innocent again? Justice matters to us. We live in a society where we believe that the world ought to work in a just way. One of the first arguments that my children ever tried with me as they first learned to talk was they said, that's not fair. To which all parents in chorus respond, life's not fair. I didn't get the rousing response I thought I would there. Perhaps some of you are more compassionate than I. In a just world, when someone does wrong, they deserve punishment. And as we grow and as we mature, those fingers eventually turn back on ourselves and we begin to realize that we are wrong, that we are guilty, that we have a debt through our sins. And the gospel of Jesus Christ speaks very clearly to that. We're going to take a look at at Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 15. As I read this, listen for the legal terminology in this. Listen for this legal debt terminology that that Paul uses here. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, by the cross. We hear all this legal language about indebtedness, and it just resonates with us. We think the world ought to work this way. The world ought to be just. And so when we hear this, it resonates deep down in in, in our gut, who we are. We're, We're built to think this way. We know that our sin requires a legal response. There's got to be a reckoning, and Jesus paid it. Now, much of my personal story is a slow coming to grips with that reality. Uh, From long ago, I understood that my sin made me guilty and that the way to become innocent again was through Jesus' sacrifice taken on in baptism. And so I put him on in baptism. But really what I took on in baptism, I understood myself as coming under a new law. I, I understood the fact that Jesus took my debt. And so what I understood was that I therefore owed him. Before, I owed somebody else, but now I live in debt to Jesus Christ. And so... It was as if Jesus had bought my mortgage from someone else and I was making my house payments to him now. I believe that Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe and he now held my marker. I owed a lifetime of service to him. And so my acts of devotion, they were sincere, but they weren't coming out of, out of love and gratitude. They were coming because I owed a debt to somebody. It, it was a legal transaction. And it felt that way in my head and in my heart. It took... Years of walking alongside and in deep communion with men and women who've experienced true freedom in Christ to see the grace in all of this. To see that Jesus doesn't want me to pay him back. He, he canceled my debt. My debt is no longer there because of what Christ Jesus did. In grace and in love, I've been forgiven, and he doesn't want me to pay him back. 
He wants me to live in freedom and to live a joyful life uh, running hard after him. So our second question that needs answering around the world is which God is the strongest? This is number two. As I mentioned, it's the baseline heart question asked in many developing countries. Now, the folks who live with this question, they don't start from a question point of wondering, is there a supernatural out there? Their question is, which of the supernatural beings is the strongest, and they want to be on their team? We lived for 12 years among the Dagara in Burkina Faso, West Africa, and they're a tribe dominated and organized around this idea of fear. Joe and Jane Dagara lived their whole lives afraid that they're going to offend some little G-God or some ancestor or some idol or some demon or they're going to offend some neighbor or some enemy who's got access to all of those and they're going to get punished for it. That's the fear they live in. And so when they come to Christ, they're putting all their eggs in the Christ basket, trusting that Jesus is stronger than all of those. Just as we hear legal language in our hymnody, you hear warfare language in theirs. One of my very favorite Dagara songs says this, I got saved and Satan is so mad, it says it in a different language, I got saved and Satan is so mad that he's got an upset stomach. Have you ever been so mad you had an upset stomach? Satan is so mad he's got an upset stomach and he's going to try to get me back, but he will fail because he can't touch my soul anymore. It's a wonderful story of, of freedom from fear in Christ. Now, in this part of the world, Satan needs to appear strong. He needs to appear powerful. And so he does. He wants to appear strong there, as opposed to here in the West. Here in the West, he delights in being a silly punchline to jokes that no one takes seriously. But he wants to show himself as strong in those places. But God does too. Many people come to Christ on a daily basis through power encounters. Times where the people of God trust God to show up, and he does. I have been a part of Dagara Christians praying for rain in the midst of drought instead of making sacrifices and getting rained on on my way home. I've seen it happen and it's not a coincidence. I've been a part of praying that God would cast demons out of demon-possessed people and then I've come back the next week and I've sat next to them in their right mind in worship service. I've seen God do these things. Now, for scripture on this, we could go almost anywhere in the Bible. Uh, we, could, we, could check, we could check out Moses defeating the magicians of Pharaoh. Or we could look at Elijah taking on the prophets of Mount Carmel. One of my favorite passages in all scripture is when Isaiah thunders against just the foolishness of idolatry. We go out to the woods, we cut down a tree, we use half of it to cook dinner, we make an idol out of the other half of it and worship it. Um, we could even, we could walk a day with the Christ. We could just walk a day with him as he casts out demons, as he heals the lame, as he tears down strongholds. But instead... Out of all those things, we're going to delight ourselves in hearing read over us one of the best passages in all of Scripture, Romans 8.35. I believe it was referenced in our communion prayer this morning. Hear these words from the Lord. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? This is a wonderful story of how God is stronger 
God is stronger than anything else in our life. Our third question, which is answered by the gospel, is Jesus able to restore my honor? Now, most of us who are here today are not really concerned much with saving face or with keeping the family honor. If you've got a knuckleheaded cousin who does stupid stuff, which I've got a few of them. Um, In fact, I've still not trusted them to meet my wife yet, mainly because visiting hours haven't matched up. Uh, My biggest concern is not is not really family honor. My biggest concern is whether or not they'd scare off my bride. When we hear of things like honor killings or of kamikaze pilots or when when we hear of committing suicide to save face, we honestly don't have a box for it. That, That doesn't fit in our way of thinking. But much of the world, from Turkey where we've got families serving to China where we've got families serving, Much of the world is absolutely concerned and driven and shaped and formed by this pairing of honor and shame. Now, I want to go ahead and say here, there's a difference between guilt and shame. Um, We we, we may not be aware of that. Guilt is determined by the rightness or wrongness of an act. Shame is determined by the community's response to your act or how your act affects the community. And there's also a huge difference In presenting, the gospel is saying that Jesus forgives your debt or that Jesus is stronger than the ancestors. And coming to someone and saying that God came to take away your shame and put it on Jesus so that he could give you honor, so that he could lift you up and give you the kind of honor that only a heavenly king can give to you. Now, particularly around the death of the Christ, scripture really focuses on the shame associated with Jesus' death. If you go to the Gospels hunting for language about the pain associated with Jesus' death, you're not going to find much of it. Instead, what the Gospel writers always talked about was the shame of Jesus' death. They spoke of soldiers mocking him. They spoke of him spitting on him. The Gospels speak of purple robes and crowns of thorns. And they speak of crowds and thieves teasing Jesus and mocking him. Uh, Paul spoke to this over in Romans chapter 10, just a couple verses later from where we read just a moment ago. Romans 10, 9 to 11 If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Hear that message. You will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. We have here an exact correlation between these two things. For Paul, salvation means no longer being shamed. And the people to whom he was writing, the Jews who were surrounded by the Greeks in Rome, he was writing to them and saying, your salvation means you're not going to be shamed anymore. Now the presentation of the gospel in culturally relevant ways is extremely important in honor and shame-based societies. So what I want to ask right now is why have I taken you on this whirlwind trip around the world? Why have I exposed you to all these thoughts about the gospel from different cultures? What difference does it make here in Montgomery, Alabama? Well, there's the obvious point that every day here in Montgomery, Alabama, we're surrounded by people who hail from these different cultures. But that's not where I'm going today. There's something I want each of you to hear in this. I believe that even though each culture has a primary doorway through which we can enter into the gospel message, our understanding of the breadth and the beauty of the gospel message is is severely limited, is hampered if if we only hear it from one angle. There is so much more to the gospel message than just the legal message that Jesus can make us innocent again. I have a few examples for you that I'd like you to hear. Maybe, first of all, 
the entirety of your Christian experience so far has been to hear of how Jesus canceled your debt. And you're so grateful. You really are. But there are times when you're still scared. There are times when you're afraid that God's not going to show up when you really need him to show up. Or maybe you're afraid that he's not actually strong enough to beat what's going on in your life. Or maybe there's that question you won't even say out loud, you're afraid he doesn't even exist. Perhaps there's some thing or some presence or some cancer in your life that you don't think you can beat and you're scared. Like Adam, you're hiding because you're terrified. My friends, it's time to come out from hiding in the bushes like Adam and Eve. It's time to come out and live in the light of the truth that Jesus is stronger than the gods and that there is nothing in your life that he cannot defeat for you. Let's try another angle. Maybe you acknowledge with your head you're free from the debt that your sins created, but deep in your heart you still carry shame from your past indiscretions, or to use the real word, sins. There are things that you've done to shame or to dirty yourself, and you don't think Jesus has the power to restore your honor. You believe that your sins are such that God can never redeem you fully. I'm telling you today, Jesus bore your shame on the cross so that he could give you honor. He wants to lift you up and put you into this family of God. Or finally, and this is the last one that I want you to hear, maybe you're dealing with a different kind of shame. This is something we don't talk a lot about in public. Perhaps you're grappling with the shame that comes not from what you did, but from what someone did to you. Someone did something to you that's just about the purest expression of evil, and because we have an opportunistic evil enemy, you've carried the shame of someone else's sin for most of your life. The shame that you feel keeps you hidden in the bushes when your loving father comes walking in the garden. And that shame bleeds into your marriage, it bleeds into how you parent, into your workplace, it bleeds into your relationship with your God. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that he can restore your honor. Jesus stands ready to receive you and to lift up your head, and we want to stand alongside with him and help you lift up your broken heart and give to you new life in him. So these three, cleansing from guilt, freedom from oppression of fear, and hope for the dishonored and hope for the shamed. This is the full picture of the gospel that's painted for us by our loving Father, and he's ready for you to embrace it today. So as of every Sunday, the opportunity and the front row are yours as we stand and sing.